Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, host of the Scene Vault Podcast and the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I spend most of my time locked away in the studio here, but this weekend is my chance to finally get to meet and greet a bunch of you. Come meet me at North Wilkesboro Speedway this Saturday. I'll be at the Moonshine and Motorsports Trail booth in the fan zone at noon. We'll have a show truck there and some cool giveaways as well, so come check us out and say hello. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. Wasn't the first deal they built, I bet. No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce, of UNC Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then. The guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Photographers are screaming bloody murder and the TV station guy saying, get the hell out of the way. I want Nobody was getting anything. We just took over. 
Uh, <laughs> it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is permission. Yes, sir. He won a race in Ontario early on in his career, and he was going to punch me out. Don't touch me. When he came into victory lane, he pulled in, I struck my head in the window, I said, Welcome home, Ernie. You made it. And he said, Yeah, we're back. Racing has been very good to me. Racing has given me everything I had. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston. Welcome to the Same Vault Podcast, presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Show Place, and a track that truly does care about NASCAR history. Now, Steve, hold on a second. Let me finish putting my soapbox together. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what you were doing. <laughs> All right. So, here goes. We had Jimmy Spencer on the last three episodes. And let's just say that we got a lot of comments about them, a lot of good and a lot that maybe weren't so good. And the thing is they were pretty evenly split. There was the camp that said that Jimmy was awesome, that we need more of this. And there was also the camp that said that Jimmy's full of crap <laughs> <laughs> and that they didn't like Jimmy at all. Steve, not everybody that we interview for this podcast is going to be universally liked. Well, I agree with that. I can't think of anybody in the world who is universally liked. I don't think anybody like that exists. Maybe Richard Petty. <laughs> other than you. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, other than I'm you. definitely not in that class. <laughs> well, Steve, you know, that's fine. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast when you're interviewing different people from different walks of life. I mean, sure. not everybody that we interview can be like speed. <laughs> <laughs> But Steve, there were a couple of comments about the language in those episodes that I really do want to address. First of all, up front, I should have included some kind of notice with the episode descriptions about the language. I didn't originally, and I did go back and fix that. I went back and added a, the language in this episode is NSFW, not safe for work. Right. And with Jimmy Spencer, it was very much. N-S-F-W. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Steve, that conversation brought up an issue that I'm sure that you faced over the course of your career, and it's something that I've personally faced for quite some time now, going all the way back to the release of my book, Go Fly. I'm sure that it doesn't come across this way sometimes on this podcast, but I am a Christian. I am a man of faith. And in the acknowledgments, to my book, Go Fly, I thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's something that I do in all my books. Well, I interviewed more than 50 people who work in and around mission control for this book. And let's just say that not all of them <laughs> were straight-laced, Bible-thumping Christians. I tried to tell their story as accurately and as respectfully as I could without judgment. There was some cursing. There was a, at least one one-night stand that I wrote about. And what one guy called an out-of-body experience. So the book comes out and the publisher actually got a letter from a woman who was offended because I thank Jesus Christ in the acknowledgments, but then proceeded to include language in situations that most would consider not Christian. 
Well, there's also at least one one star negative review floating out there that complains that the book is too religious because I included Jesus in the acknowledgments and then wrote about a guy who left NASA to become a pastor. So evidently, I made everybody mad. <laughs> sure seems like it. But what do you do, you know? Here's where I stand on that. And this is as close to discussing politics as I will ever get on this podcast. I feel like it's a very dangerous thing for a quote unquote journalist to clip and snip and edit an interview to fit his or her own worldview. And the only editing that I did do to the language in Jimmy's interview, well, Steve, I I did shorten GD to just damn. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I did edit it to fit, (laughs) to fit my own personal beliefs, but folks are just going to have to live with that. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of straight reporting anymore where the who, what, when, where, how, and why facts of a story are conveyed. And then it's left to the reader or viewer to decide where they stand on the issue. And that's where I was coming from when we started posting the interview with Jimmy. It's Jimmy Spencer as is. And it's up to the listeners of the podcast and the viewers on YouTube to decide what they think. And Somebody actually suggested that we bleep the language. What exactly do you bleep? Do we just bleep George Carlin's unforgivable words? <laughs> right. <laughs> or do we bleep everything? Well, I was on a podcast recently and I said the word poop and they bleeped that out. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. So there's that. Bleeping is not an easy thing to do, by the way, technically speaking. And yeah, you're right. What do you bleep? I'll tell you what I feel like, Rick. If we are going to have a podcast about NASCAR's history and we're interviewing people who made up that history, we have to do it unfiltered. We have to let them be themselves and express their own opinions. Otherwise, we're not really doing an accurate job of what we're supposed to be representing. So if we have one guy that uses bad language, we have another person on that does not or is even totally into Christianity, the song was preaching to us. That might not be something that everybody wants to listen to, but that's who that guy is. So I think the safest thing we can do, Rick, is do what you did earlier. We feel we've got a show in which there's going to be some untoward language that people won't like. We have to warn it. We have to let them know it's out there and they can make a decision as to whether or not they want to listen to it. That's what I feel like. Well, and I agree with that. And again, I should have included the the note up front about the language and I did not, but I have gone back and fixed that. So future listeners to those episodes <laughs> can know that there's going to be some, well, it's going to be some interesting language from Jim. <laughs> well, I think, I think if they understand that what we're trying to do is present these people as they really are yeah. in their role in NASCAR history. I think they also understand that some of these people are going to be a little bit more blunt than others. And I think that's fine, but I also think we warn them of it. We let them know this is coming. Make your own decision whether you want to listen or not. I think that's a fair thing to do. I want the people that we interview to feel comfortable to be themselves. True. Because I think that's why people listen to the podcast is because people are comfortable being themselves around you and around me. Look, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but let's just say 
what you hear on the same vault podcast is as close to who these people really are as possible. And we'll leave it at that. And that's the way it should be. So Steve, this week in our first segment, Bill, the hat man, Broderick. All right. <laughs> Steve, he is one of the most recognizable figures in the history of NASCAR that nobody really knows who he is because invariably you see questions that ask who's that great big guy with the great big head of hair and the mustache. That's right. You're right about <laughs> him being one of the most recognizable figures boy with that pompadour and his mustache and his wide grin smile, every racetrack. I mean, you just, you knew who he was. You didn't think about him. He has been one of our most requested guests here on the podcast. And after a little bit of back and forth on getting him up to speed on zoom, <laughs> we got him. <laughs> and in this segment of our interview, Bill talks about how he first got involved in racing, how he came to be in charge of victory lane and some of his more memorable victory lane celebrations. And there were a lot of them over the years. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the October 13th, 1977 issue. And that was just the 12th issue in scenes run. And I think the paper was still finding its way and deciding what it wanted to be. It featured coverage of the Charlotte and North Wilkesboro events and Bill Broderick on the outside cover. Must've been a victory lane shot. Don't you think? <laughs> Yes, it was Bill Broderick and Benny Parsons after Benny won at Charlotte that fall. So Bill Broderick on the cover of Grand National Saint. Now I've got a trivia question coming up about that. So get your thinking cap on. All right. I'll try. Steve, this week we have new Patreon support. All right. From Jeff Griffin, Terry Payne, Jared Seliger, and Scott Baines and increased support from Blake Sorter and David Newt. Now, Steve, do you remember what that means? Yes, I do. Because of Jeff and Jared and Terry, Scott, Blake, and David stepping up to the plate, I'm now down to one Diet Pepsi a day. No wonder you're shaking. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get quite to the no Diet Pepsi stage which at this point is perfectly fine with me <laughs> because caffeine withdrawals are a get out the bleep button. <laughs> yeah. I've been having some serious caffeine withdrawal and I have been sticking to my one diet Pepsi a day since these supporters stepped up to the plate and met my challenge. Y'all thank you. I don't know what else to say. But Jeff, Jared, Terry, Scott, Blake, David, thank you. You allow us to do this podcast, and I appreciate that. I really, really do. Now, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. If you can do a monthly show of support, you can do that at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same bot podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this show is not associated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. 
Well, Bill, just to start off with, how did you first become interested in racing way back when? Oh, gee, that's going way back. I saw my first race in Elyria, Ohio, on a quarter-mile dirt track when I was about nine or ten years old. First time I ever went to a race with my parents. My, we were visiting people. They wanted to go to a race, dirt track race. Jalopies, I guess you might want to call them. I got hooked. That was it. Yeah, I never really got into the heavy stuff until all oh, the early 60s because I was into motorcycles. Uh, I had a motorcycle when I went to high school because I couldn't afford a car. And we went to all the motorcycle races and I was, my friends had motorcycles and I was kind of an oddball because I rode my, my Harley to high school when I was a senior. <laughs> and uh, I was into motorcycles, but I, then I, in 1960, I bought a new Corvette. And wow. That got me into the Corvette Club, and I started to go to some sports car races. And I'm um, I met a good friend, uh, Fat Sam Searing. He had a Maserati 200 SI that he raced, and I helped him tune the car, and I tow his car, and we go to races. And I got in. I started following the sports car stuff, and then when I got into uh, the media in 1963 or four, 63, I guess, uh, I got a, was getting publicity for the Corvette club. And I went to WNOP in Newport, Kentucky, which was a little daytime radio station to, you know, try and get some publicity. And, uh, it ended up that the, Station manager says, well, if you can say all the time, we'll give you a radio show. I said, well, hell yes, I'll go out and do that. <laughs> so we, I got a tire sponsor, and I had 15 minutes every Saturday on radio. And that was my start in radio. And I had that for, oh, a couple of years. And then I, it was funny, uh, and I think it was 66, I got a phone call. From John Townsend, who was the features editor of the Cincinnati Enquirer, which was the AM newspaper in Cincinnati, my hometown. And he called me and I, hi, John. Oh, fine. We talked. He says, can you write? And I said, what? And he says, yeah, can you write? I says, well, hell, I write my own scripts and I do stuff. And I had written some things for some uh, trade magazines and papers. And he says, well, we've got a new tabloid going every week, and it's geared towards the younger people, the teenagers and younger people, and we'd like somebody to write something about cars and maybe get some racing and, you know, that type of thing. Hot Roger says, okay, so I wrote two or three columns and type sent them to them. They liked them, and bingo, I was in the newspaper business. Well, that was went on for old... I don't know, a couple of months, I guess. And the sports editor got a hold of me and says, hey, can you cover some racing? He says, we got people calling all the time complaining that we don't cover racing. Well, they ran agate. It's about the only thing they did. Or you might get an inch or two of Indianapolis 500 or something. They just went to racing town. I said, sure. 
So I started covering all the local racetracks and started going nationally. I went to 64. I went to Charlotte. Now, 64 was a bad year. And I'll explain that in a minute. But anyway, suddenly I became the motorsports writer for the Cincinnati Enquirer. Wow. And God gave me a talent to be able to write. That, that's the only thing. I have no, no J school education, never went to college. And I was able to write, but I was doing two or three columns a week, plus covering the weekend races. So I was doing pretty good. And I had another job, too, to pay the bills of the house and spend my children. But 64 was the first year that I was writing for the paper. And it was a bad year because I was in Indianapolis when Eddie Sachs got killed. The following week, I think it was, or might have been two weeks, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina when Fireball had the bad wreck. And it was another week or so after that, I was covering a sprint car race in Terre Haute, Indiana. And Johnny White went over the, well, they didn't have walls, no guardrails, but he, it was a dirt track, the action track. And he went off the track and got paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. And at that time, I said, what the hell am I doing in this business? I said, this isn't right. But I stuck with it. We went on, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, are you from the Cincinnati area originally? Yes, I was born and raised in Cincinnati. But during the big war, I lived on a farm with my grandparents up in Michigan and Indiana and my aunt. My father was in the service. And when my dad came back home, uh, we all moved back down to Cincinnati. And that's where I went to school. Uh, my reindeer years in grade school and high school in Cincinnati. Yeah. So surely I lived for a while. So Until sure. I went to work for the company. I got When I got hired by uh, Union Oil and uh, uh, my first day of work was January 1st, 1969. And uh, until that time, I lived in Cincinnati. So surely, being from Cincinnati, you're a Cincinnati Reds fan, correct? That's what Gene Granger used to call me all the time. <laughs> Gene Granger, for those who don't know, and might be listening, was a writer out of Spartanburg, South Carolina. And he was on my case all the time. Friendly. I mean, I love Gene. He was great. But uh, yeah, that's, that, that was uh, the mouth of the North. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you've got a solid job in Cincinnati, and I'm sure you've got a solid reputation at Cincinnati as a motorsports writer. So, how did the job with Union Oil come about for January one, nineteen sixty nine? Well, it's, uh, I had was pretty busy. I was and I was doing track announcing, and I was I was I was the guy in that time and the job through the grapevine as we know in racing how it goes was coming open bill kaiser was the pr guy at union oil at that time which was changing names from the pure oil company to union oil to union 76 and bill kaiser had been there for a year and his wife hated chicago couldn't stand the cold weather in the north and he had to go back down south. So that job was opening up. And great. I applied for it. Had never never given a dream that I would ever be handled because there were some other people who thought they had the job already done. And uh but 
I got called uh, up. Uh, I, I filled out a resume and I had all my little writings and videotapes and everything and sent them all in. And uh, my mentor, Leo Spaniuolo, who hired me, uh, flew me up to Chicago with my wife and interviewed me at uh, O'Hare Airport in a restaurant. And we things went well. And Leo was, if Brando had not played the Godfather <laughs> in The Godfather, Leo Spaniuolo would have been perfect for the part. <laughs> Italian, short, stubby guy to the point. Was my mentor, and he took a chance on this on this kid, and hired me for the PR job to replace Bill Kaiser, and I'm eternally grateful to him. But uh, he took a chance, and I ended up being there 29 years almost. So uh, it worked out well. What was what your job description? What did they want you to do? I handled the publicity for the racing division. I didn't have to work in sales or anything else. I strictly the racing division. And uh, we, they were starting the race stopper court that time of, of my victory lane girls. And uh, the, the company was changing names from Pure to Union 76, and they wanted to make sure that the Union 76 name got out there and so I became a spokesperson in racing for Union 76. Now, uh, I never worked PR before, except on the receiving end as a journalist, because I was covering races from 1964 through 68. So I knew all you guys, and I knew photographers. So uh, my experience is what got me the job and fit me in. I went to work on New Year's Day, January 1st. January, we didn't go in the office because it was a holiday. Uh, January 2nd, I went into the office. Oh, and I had a desk and I had a cubicle. Boy, this is pretty cool. Electric typewriter and all this stuff. On January 3rd, I was in Daytona Beach, Florida for the pure oil economy run, economy test, we, they, where we pure oil at that time. You did tests on brakes and fuel and stuff. It was a big national deal. They'd buy the car. And that was my first taste of being a PR guy of a flack. It was January 3rd. In Daytona. And then I followed that up going to the Daytona 500 in 1969. And that was my first race as a PR guy for Union Oil. Well, didn't this job now put you... Almost, not exclusively, almost exclusively on the NASCAR trail, correct? At that time. But as and I, I did that because, well, Union 76 was so heavy in NASCAR. We were the official fuel in NASCAR, and we owned 25% of the International Speedway Corporation because we owned Bill France the money to build Talladega and Daytona. And, uh, I was strictly NASCAR for quite a while until we got into some Indy cars and boat racing and supplying product. And if it was an open weekend, I would take advantage of that to go and further the name of the company. But basically, in the very beginning, it was it was just NASCAR. 
how did coordinating everything in Victory Lane begin for well, you? How well, did that come about? The first race I went to in, in 1969, Leroy Arbor won that race, driving Junior Johnson's car. And we had four race shoppers there, and here's Victory Lane, and I got the girl. And it was a zoo. It was a total <laughs> flaming zoo. Photographers are screaming bloody murder, and the TV station guy saying, get the hell out of the way. I want Nobody was getting anything. And I said, hmm, this isn't good. Well, we found out I'm, I'm the new kid on the block. So we got our pictures and did stuff. And the next race was, I think, Rockingham. And same way. So I, I said, wait a minute. Nobody's benefiting from this. The sponsors aren't. The photographers aren't. The TV guys aren't. Let's try and calm down a little bit and put a little order in it. Well, I'm no midget. I'm a big, fat, ugly guy with long hair. You know, <laughs> I said, let's get this. And I got a loud voice. And so it just started to develop that we said, wait a minute. You fear us do this. Well, everybody says, this ain't too bad. Look, I'm getting what I want. The TV, I'm happy with here. Uh, the contingency people were getting their pictures, and nobody complained. And that's how and it just went from there. When you first started coordinating Victory Lane, did you go to NASCAR or anybody to say, hey, this is my idea. Let me step in and, and nope. kind of take charge of nope. things? Or did you just walk into Victory Lane? and? Uh, we just took over. <laughs> uh, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is it's permission. Permit. Yes, sir. <laughs> and well, okay. First of all, NASCAR didn't give a hoot. They didn't right. care what happened in Victory Lane. The uh, track promoter, he wasn't too keen on doing anything down there. They didn't have anybody around, no people to do anything. Uh, the drivers and whatever did whatever they were told. The photographer. Nobody was doing anything. So we just did it and it worked. And then, then all of the track promoters all said, hey, this is pretty good because the sponsors were happy because they were getting what they wanted. So they went back to the promoters and promoted, oh, sure, well, we're at, we're at. and everybody just left me alone and I had no problems. Did you, you face did that for years and years and years? So let's just ask this, Rick. What's the strangest victory lane you ever experienced? Oh, God. <laughs> Give me strangest. And that's a good question, Steve. Uh, we were, we were uh, the first race at Dover, Delaware was run, and there was no grandstands at that race at Dover, Delaware. It was all the horse race track grandstands on, and uh, there was no noise. The race, Richard Petty won the race. The race was over, and we brought the car in on the horse race track, which was inside of the auto track. But the grandstands were all glass and clothes for the horse race people with lounges, and that's where they made their betting. Absolutely no noise, no infield crowd, no <laughs> nothing. And we come in and we're all standing there, boy, this is kind of weird, isn't it? Well, yeah, and Richard says, well, let's let them catch, get their pictures, and we'll do their stuff. And we had a victory lane, but it was like doing out in the middle of a cornfield. <laughs> What's the most emotional victory lane you were ever a part of? Uh, 
Well, Richard Petty's 200 twin was, was without a doubt, one we'll never forget. I mean, that just being what it was. Uh, Ernie Irvin, when he won in New Hampshire, after coming back from being almost killed in a wreck and recuperating, and he came to New Hampshire and he and he won a race in New Hampshire, respect. That that was great. I'll never forget when he came into Victory Lane, he pulled in, I stuck my head in the window, I said, Welcome home, Ernie. You made it. And he said, Yeah, we're back. And uh that that, that was pretty strong on that one. Uh I can't think of emotion. Anytime I had a first time winner in Victory Lake was always great because they didn't know what was going to be coming off. And they, everybody's worked up and the crews and their owners, everybody is very, you know, it's just one of those first time deals. That was always good to, and I always tried to make a special point to make sure that the driver got what he wanted and we got the family and the girlfriends and the wives and the crew and just took care of it to make sure that he had good memories of that first time in Victory Lane. All right, Dale Earnhardt was his own man now. <laughs> Tell me what, about it. What, what was he like in Victory Lane? Earnhardt, <laughs> well, he's, at first, he was rougher than a cob. Uh, he won a race in Ontario when he was uh, early on in his career, and he was going to punch me out. Don't touch me. Hey. <laughs> Cool, man. Whatever you say, boss. But he mellowed over the years. But he he liked to do things his way. <laughs> well, I like to do things my way. But we got along, and he come out, and he loved champ the spray of champagne. That was his big thing. He loved to do that. And I had a little deal going with Wes and Don from being overseas was a 24-hour Le Mans. I knew the people. Anyway, I went for about two years, we always, I usually would have a, a, a real bomb of champagne. And if he won the race, he wanted to spray that champagne right now. I wouldn't let him do it because he'd spray it all over the cameras and the TV guys and everything. And, and, they hated it just because they couldn't get any artwork. I kept it, and he got Broderick. Where's the champagne? I gotta have it. Just calm down, calm down. <laughs> and he'd go over and we do stuff. And later on, we do the champagne. And if we do the hats, he might. Oh, I don't want to do the hat. Do the hat. But he he'd give you a rough way to go. But then he'd give you that look, give you a wink, and you knew he was pulling your chain. Uh, just the way he was. He loved to pull your chain, give you a rough way, but he'd come around because he knew the value of what was going on and sponsorships. And all. He, very smart guy, but he was his own man. And uh, But we were able to work with him, and uh, it worked out pretty good. Bill, there are a million races that I would love to talk to you about and ask you about because you think back over your career and you were a part of a lot of historic victory lanes. Is there any way that you could put together maybe a top five most memorable that you were involved in? Well, as I said, Richard Petty's and, and Earnhardt, all of them, 
every victory lane is great because everybody's a winner and everybody is happy. If you've ever seen a victory lane where a guy says, oh, what the hell am I doing here? Let me get out of here. I don't want to be in this place. Huh, that don't happen. Victory lane is a happy place. And when you get to work in a happy place with happy people, it's it's great. It's fantastic. You can't beat it. And it's part of a sports. It's winning. And when you're able to share that and make it better for the people involved, you can't go wrong. That's right. But I, I've been very fortunate to be involved in all kinds of racing, not just NASCAR Victory Lane. I mean, I've been Formula One and, and IMSA and motorcycles and boats and you name it, and I've probably done it one time or another uh, to just to be in motorsports. I, w- I was lucky enough to, I went to Le Mans for over 20 years straight, working, I worked with Billy Hagen when he went to Le Mans, I worked later on with a Buick guy, then I worked with Chevrolet, I was part of the exploratory group I put together for Herb Fischel, who I worked with for a number of years, to get the Corvettes, and when we went in 2000 with the Corvettes and they won, that was terrific because I had been there all that. In fact, General Motors was nice enough to give me a the Cross Flags Award from Corvette. Uh, I've been all kinds of racing, uh, champ cars, and you name it, and it's all been great. Uh, I've had a great career, and racing has been very good to me. Racing has given me everything I had. But to answer your questions on the victory, all of them. That's all I can say. Every victory lane I've ever done. Well, you had a very distinctive look in victory lane. You were tall. You had that plume of red hair (laughs) and the beard. You had uh, uh, jewelry. And uh, cameras could not stay off of you because the way you did your job. And that was, was that something you actually cultivated? Or was it just an accident? No. Uh, well, I that, that devolved because I'm kind of a flamboyant, egotistic guy. <laughs> and, uh, but that was my persona. And the long hair and the beard and, and being what I did let me do my job better. Because it helped me when I wasn't in victory killing. If I would go on a PR assignment on something else, uh, another event of some kind, I was fortunate enough that people would recognize me because of that look. Uh, I could walk down the street. I, I was just different with the long hair, as you just said, Steve. And that persona let me do my job better Victory Lane was what it was, but my job outside of Victory Lane let me do it better. I could walk in the AP office in New York at Rock Center and go up and people who never went to races but saw me, hey, hi, how you doing? I'm in, hi. Or I could go anywhere and, and it helped. Helped get me on airplanes first class. It helped <laughs> get me a good seat in a restaurant. Uh, you name it. It, it, it's part of the celebrity that, that comes with it, and I loved it. Well, Bill, you not only represented Unical, as you referred to earlier, 
you had several other entities and we'd like to talk about them, but I'd like to start with the Moishan Don Champagne in France. And the fact that you went to Le Mans so many years, how did that start? How did that develop? And what were some of the things that kept you going to Le Mans? Well, I went to Le Mans first in 1979, because I was going, I went to a few Formula One races. Uh, Danny Sullivan was running a Formula One car for Rob Walker. And Danny and I were kind of friendly from his racing here on the KM circuit. And anyway, I went to Le Mans and or I went to France, went to Le Mans a couple of times, and then Billy Hagen wanted to go race Le Mans. Billy Hagen ran Instacart and owned Terry Levani's stock car. And he was wanted to take his IMSA Camaros to Le Mans. And I told him, I said, well, Billy, I've been to Le Mans several times. I knew Benoit Froger pretty well, who was the PR guy, and I knew some of the people over there. And I've been there, so he wasn't going in. I said, I'll be glad to help you out at Le Mans if you want. Okay, Bill, do it. So I put together press kits and and we went over to Le Mans. But I had met up earlier with my very dear friend, Henri Perrier. Uh, I think you've met Henri Perrier. Yeah, I um, have. He's been in Charlotte. In fact, we brought him to Charlotte one time. We built the pyramid down in the hotel where he poured the champagne. Anyway, Henri was PR at Moet Chandon. So I would go visit Epernay all the time, the home of champagne. I fell in love with champagne. Because I started with Billy Hagen, and he went for two years. Oh, we had some... That, that was something else. I I made the first year, second year we went over Stratograph, was, he owned, uh, was an oil company. And, and was, I, made, <laughs> I made up T-shirts. Billy Hagan America had his car on and says, I'm going to make a killing. We, I made up a couple hundred T-shirts. We, and we put them in a truck and they went over to Le Mans. And I had to cut a deal with the vendors, you know, to put my t-shirts out, I sold maybe five. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I had to bring all the t-shirts back home and we sold them in a flea market for, I don't know, 50 cents a piece or something like that. (laughs) But uh, it was funny because we took the t-shirts in and we brought them out, never paid a dime of tax, never told inspectors anything. And how I got away with that, I'll never understand. But anyway, but then that's how Le Mans came around. And Le Mans is one of one of the three great, one of my favorite events. It's an event. Uh, the guys in Texas, Buick had a car. They had when the V6 Buick turbocharged came out. And I'd been working off and on to help General Motors racing out. And I went over and put together some stuff for the Buick and uh, with a a technical engine. The guys didn't do too well. But then I kept going back to Le Mans every year just because I liked to go to Le Mans and uh, new people. And when when I started helping Herb with to get the Corvette project going, and then later the Cadillacs went in 2002, uh, I helped some publicity on his end, not with the corporate PR, because they were 
corporate PR and worked their way and we worked ours. And I had, uh, ended up, we, I had, uh, uh, a photographers. I hired a couple of photographers who were doing, and we were, I hired, uh, a photographer, a good friend of mine was the AP photo editor in Miami, brought him up. We were sending pictures from Lamar to the AP in New York City of the Corvettes. We bypassed Paris AP. We're going in and Phil Sandlin, who's a photographer, good friend of mine. Uh, oh, we've I've had great stories with him. We were doing direct. And I sent them direct to Detroit, to the newspaper, Detroit News, photos. They'd have them, boom. So we knew they had photo coverage and everything went well. And uh, when the Cadillacs went in, uh, we, we tried to help. And uh, I was a big help for Herb. I was I was Herb Fischel's gopher, really, his, his bag man. I always said, yeah, what do you want? I'm Herb's bag man. Whenever he wanted <laughs> something done, because I knew the people, I would go. And that was from, well, we were there in 88. And then, uh, of course, I kept going back and then we went in 2000, 2001, two, three, and four. I went for it till uh, I got so I didn't have to do that. I didn't do that anymore. But that, that's how I got hooked on the law. And I, I will tell all the people watching, if you get a chance to go to a race, they say the three great races are Indianapolis 500, for 24 hours of them all in Monaco. Well, I've never been to Monaco. That's on my bucket list. One of these years, hopefully, Lord willing, but let's just stay around a little bit longer. Maybe I'll get to Monaco for a Grand Prix race. But uh Mans is just unbelievable. And I loved it. And you get to eat good and drink good. <laughs> <laughs> This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. Steve, first things first, what is your best Bill Broderick story? Because you and he, your careers pretty much paralleled each other for a long time. Yeah, yeah we're pretty good friends. Uh, Bill was pretty much friends with everybody, for one another, true. But I think the most interesting story I have took place in Riverside, California. Now, I don't remember the year but bill went out and rounded up a group of us riders said we're going to, to dinner in los angeles so we get on a bus that he gets and we go into los angeles now we're thinking we're going to a restaurant of some kind because bill hasn't mentioned where we're going but we pull up at some place that apparently is nothing but a magic show magicians i think it was called the magic chateau something to that effect now, you have dinner in there, but after dinner, you walk around this chateau, this building, and there's all magicians standing there doing card tricks for you and other stunts. But the main thing Bill led us to, he says, you got to see this. What is that? He says, it's Houdini reincarnated. What are you talking about? It is a show where they could raise the spirit of Houdini. So we go into this small theater and sit at these tables. And out comes a guy who's emceeing the thing. And before I know it, he's saying something about the spirit of Houdini coming back to the building. And the whole room is shaking. And things are rattling. 
And I'm looking at my buddy Tom Higgins, and we're just started laughing. <laughs> and, and, and you hear these weird noises. And here comes this the smoke out of nowhere comes in. And uh, you see this apparition in the distance that looks like a guy dressed in a tuxedo. And that is supposed to be Houdini. And he sweeps all around the ceiling, up and down and across the floor. And then all of a sudden, the lights flash on, and everything is over with. And you're sitting there looking at each other. Most of us are laughing. Some of us are wide-eyed. But Bill is over there grinning from ear to ear, <laughs> watching us to go through all this thing. And I tell you what, I asked, what the heck are you doing? He said, man, I just like magic. I just like magic. And he was really honest about that. But think about this, Rick. What kind of PR man have you ever known that would round up a group of writers, take them to dinner at a magic show, and have them entertained by magicians for the whole evening? That was totally unique. And that was Bill. That was Bill. That is the Bill Broderick that I knew, that I knew of when I was in NASCAR together with him. And I think that kind of personality, I think it goes back all the way to the beginning with him. Can you imagine the sight of young Billy Broderick <laughs> rolling up into his high school parking lot, riding a Harley? Now you can just imagine that image. And then in 1960, he bought a new Corvette. So I'm not sure there's any other way to put this, but I believe Bill Broderick liked to make an impression on people, didn't he? Oh, I think there's no question about it. I mean, when I first saw him, I was impressed because he didn't look like any other thing I'd ever seen in stock cars. And no, not with that hair and not with that mustache and not with those rings on his fingers. This guy was somewhat different. He liked it that way. Well, Steve, I didn't know this, but Bill actually got started in the sport as the motorsports rider for the Cincinnati Inquirer. And he goes to the Indianapolis 500 in 1964 and Eddie Sachs and Dave McDonald are killed in just a, a nightmare of a crash on just the second lap of the race. He goes to the world 600 at Charlotte that same year and fireball Roberts sustains injuries that cost him his life. He's had a sprint car race in Terre Haute, Indiana, when a driver is paralyzed for life in an accident. And, and Steve, we've talked about safety many, many times here on this podcast. And of course we put together the firestorm documentary series on the 2000, 2001 seasons, but it will never cease to amaze me how far we've come since those dark days in 1964 and the ones that we faced in the year 2000 and 2001. Well, I don't want this to come out wrong, but the only good thing about accidents, which is really nothing. But if you wanted to point to something that was beneficial is that each time we've had an accident like this, the sanctioning bodies, including NASCAR have taken steps to see that something like that doesn't happen again. And as you know, Rick, that was particularly so after 2001. Bill's first race with Union Oil was the 1969 Daytona 500. And he's got the race stoppers there and Leroy Yarborough wins and victory lane is basically for all <laughs> intents and purposes, a free for all. <laughs> and he goes to the next race at Rockingham and the same thing happened. There is no organization, no order, no nothing. 
And, and Bill decides it because he's this big, fat, ugly guy, his words, not mine. <laughs> he's going to step in and bring some order to the proceedings. And just like that, Bill Broderick is in charge of Victor Lane. And I think the amazing thing to me is that he didn't go to NASCAR and he didn't go to the tracks to get permission to do this. He just stepped in and started issuing orders and telling everybody the way that it was going to be. And everybody listened. What does that say about Bill Broderick and who he was and what it his personality a, was like? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Bill was a guy to take over. Now, first of all, you got his appearance. Okay. He is a, I don't want to call him my ugly guy, but he, but he is big. So he has a forceful appearance and he obviously decided something needed to be done. And I think that if he had gone to NASCAR and the speedways, it, it, it might've been a great big hassle and Bill didn't want that. So what he did was just stepped in and took over control. Steve, what are some of the victory lane celebrations that you remember over the years? There were a lot of them over the years, Rick, but I do believe the one I find most memorable is Daryl Walter when he won the Daytona 500 in 1989. He was so deliriously happy and just hugging everybody. And he said, I won the Daytona 500. I won the Daytona 500. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He looked at Michael Jordan and said, this is the Daytona 500. Ain't it? <laughs> then he did the icky shuffle. That's the football player, the Cincinnati Bengals, who did this particular dance in the end zone when he scored and then threw his helmet down on the ground, which is exactly what Daryl did. I don't believe I've ever seen one with more animation and exuberance than that one. Man, that was the one that I was going to say. It's right there in the notes. You, <laughs> you, you copied my homework. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> well, I couldn't let you steal all the thunder. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let me see what I can come up with. Steve, in all seriousness, I do remember that one. 1989 Daytona 500. I was very new to the sport, but the exuberation that he exhibited. And then 1998 Daytona 500, when Dell Earnhardt won the Daytona 500. Sure. There was a lot of emotion from a guy who was used to winning and who had won everything else. And this was the one jewel that was missing from his crown. And he finally got it. And I think it meant a lot to him, but there's another one that kind of comes to mind that sticks in my mind. Joe Nemechek won the 1997 Bush series season finale at Homestead about eight months after his brother, John lost his life in an accident at Homestead. Right. And for Joe to come back and win that race at the track that had just claimed his brother less than a year before, that was a very emotional victory lane. Now, speaking of Dale Earnhardt early in his career, Bill said that Dale won a race at Ontario and in victory lane, Dale told Bill, don't touch me. And he was still very <laughs> young in his career and still kind of right. rough around the edges. Now I looked right. it up and Dale never actually won a race at Ontario. Right. He, he clinched the 1980 Winston cup championship there. So I'm thinking that was probably the event that Bill was remembering if it was in fact, Ontario, but Bill did say that Dale mellowed over the years, but added that Dale still liked to do things his way. And Bill liked to do things his way. <laughs> uh -huh. 
<laughs> so I'm sure that there were probably more than a few tense moments between the two. You know, for instance, Dale wanted to get out of the car in Victor Lane and immediately commenced to start spraying the champagne <laughs> that Bill had on hand. But Bill knew if Dale and the team started firing away with champagne, they would get all over everything, including the cameras that were being pointed his way. So Bill told Dale to just hold on, wait a second, which I'm sure made Dale want to start spreading the champagne even more. <laughs> Steve, it's kind of like the do not touch signs in the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Petty's garage. Well, those signs make me want to touch those cars that much worse. <laughs> I know how you feel. <laughs> but then the old teddy bear Dell Earnhardt would wink at Bill and Bill would know that Dell was just yanking his chain a little bit. And that was his way of going, gotcha. <laughs> and you've talked about your relationship with Dell over the years on this podcast and you knew him a long time, but what was your gotcha moment with him where he acted like you were in his cross? Well, mine happened very early. I got the job at Grand National Scene. So I had to get down to North Carolina from rural Virginia pretty quickly. I made a deal with Jay Wells, my old buddy. I was going to share his apartment with him. Well, I got there and we didn't even wait around five minutes. He was grabbing me and he said, come on, we're going to go to that door. We're going to Dale Earnhardt's house. He's cooking steaks. Come on. So we went up there and got there. Sure enough. And there was Dale. He said, now I'm not going to eat. I've, I'm full. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to go out here on the boat a little bit. You guys cook your steaks, and I'll come back and we'll talk. So Jay and I cooked our steaks, ate them, and Dale came back. Dale came up to me, and he said, where's my steak? Excuse me? He said, where's my steak, Wade? I want to eat. I said, you told me you were eating, and you were going out on a boat. I didn't eat anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Where's my steak? Then he looked at me and grinned. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't been in Mooresville 30 minutes before Dale pulled a gotcha on me. <laughs> Steve, we concluded this week's segment with Bill talking about going to the 24 hours of Le Mans for so many years and all the different forms of motorsports that he'd been involved with. Steve, how many different forms of motorsports have you either covered or attended? Uh, well, stock cars, of course. Local bull rings up there in Franklin County, that kind of race up there. Drag racing, went to Bristol several times while I was in Roanoke. Uh, IndyCar racing. When the Greek Publishing Company started IndyCar magazine, I was out in uh, Long Beach covering a race out there. Also one at Las Vegas when they raced IndyCars out there. So that's been pretty much it. Well, I have never seen an Indy-type car at speed on a racetrack. The closest I've ever come are the modifieds that, that run at Bowman Gray Stadium. And I had never really paid much attention to F1 until recent years. I met Mark Stewart, the son of Jackie Stewart, while working on the Mission Control documentary. And then the F1 documentary came out, and then Senna, and then the Rush movie by Ron Howard, and now the F1 Drive to Survive show and the Michael Schumacher documentary on Netflix. But as far as actually covering it, I've never covered an F1 race, never covered an IndyCar race. I guess after 30 years of going to NASCAR races, I'm still a newbie to motorsports in general. <laughs> well, I've never covered an F1 race either, but my interest in F1 has really been peaked 
by the uh, films that you mentioned, you know, Rush and Michael Schumacher on the uh, Netflix. Uh, pretty good educational stuff. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. And we're going to start off this segment with one of my infamous trivia questions. Are you ready, Steve Wade? Uh, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know how many times Bill Broderick appeared on the cover of either Grand National or Winston Cup scene? Oh, that's simple. That's easy, Rick. The answer is a lot. (laughs) Well, Steve, this is how I spend my time preparing for this podcast. I actually went through every issue and I counted. Uh oh. Okay. So I have a fairly accurate number. Have you got a guess? I'll tell you, I, I, ballpark? Yeah. 50. Would you believe 15? Oh, is that all? I'm like you. I am shocked that it was that low. Oh, I seem to remember a picture of him in just about every issue. Well, here's the thing. When a driver would pull into the victory lane, Bill was the first person that you saw, Mm -hmm. of course, going up to the car. And because he was such a part of victory lane, I would have thought that Bill would have been on, like you say, 50 to 100 covers or more, but instead... Winston Cup scene, Grand National scene had a lot of trophy shots on the cover. Okay. And so when the trophy shots were taken, Bill instead of being right at, yeah, Bill yeah. stepped to the side. So, yeah, 15 was the grand total. That I well, I, I'm telling you, I'm kind of surprised. But uh, now that you explain it that way, I can understand it. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought that was kind of interesting little note. So, Publisher Rob Griggs did a survey of basically every team about what their plans were for 1978. And this is October of 1977. And according to Rob, only two teams had signed contracts for the following year. Hale Yarbrough was going to continue driving for Junior Johnson with a sponsorship from First National City Traveler's Checks. Kale was in the process of rounding out his second consecutive championship. And of course, he would go on to win another in 1978, becoming the first driver to win three straight championships. And Darrell Waltrip, much to his chagrin, (laughs) had a contract with Diegard Racing and sponsored Gatorade. DW Diegard. And those dang contracts. <laughs> and that particular contract signing would come with much drama. <laughs> yes, it did. And trying to get out of that contract right. came with even more drama. <laughs> Richard Petty said, we have not signed a contract with STP because we don't know what the rules will be next year, but we don't foresee any problems. We have been with STP since 1972 and will be with them next year as well. That quote is clear enough. We have not signed a contract with STP. Well, the next day, the next day, Steve, before the start of the race, it was announced that Richard Petty and STP had signed their contract for 1978. Well, I got so, news for you. I, I don't know whether it was around this time or maybe a little bit later, 
but Richard and STP had a lifetime contract. There wasn't much doubt from year to year who was going to be Richard's sponsor. I still got to ask, do you think that Richard was maybe kind of holding his cards close to the vest or oh, do you I have think no doubt. they actually had not signed the contract yet? I think probably Richard was holding his cards pretty close to his vest. He just wanted to be sure that all things worked out mainly to his satisfaction. Well, one sponsor that I did kind of notice and that I mentioned just a second ago, and I didn't realize that they were as widespread throughout the garage as what it seemed like they were. First National City Traveler's Checks. They were with Kale and with Benny Parsons and with Bobby Allison. I didn't know that they sponsored that many different teams. Yeah, I'd forgotten that, Rick, to tell you the truth. But for a time, they were evidently the camping world of the Winston Cup Series. <laughs> Well, Napa sponsored the Charlotte event, and they had put up $18,000 in bonus money for the leader at various intervals throughout the right. race. And at the time, that was pretty good money. Oh, yeah. Very that they were money. going for. Sure. Well, <laughs> well, it was originally announced that A.J. Foyt was not going to be able to take part in the program because he was sponsored by Standard Auto Parts, and so he couldn't run a Napa sticker on his car. And to be honest with you, it didn't sound like AJ was too bent out of shape about missing out on that potential bonus money. AJ said, I don't give a damn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm planning on leading as many laps as possible in this race. I've been badgered all year and I have a point to prove. Well, Napa later relented and they allowed AJ to run for the bonus money despite not having the decal on his car. But in the end, the question was moot because AJ never led and he wound up finishing seventh, five <laughs> laps down to race winner Benny Parsons. Yeah, all is well that ends well in that situation. <laughs> well, Benny did dominate the race and he did win by more than a lap over Kel Yarborough. Kel said in the quote sidebar, my car got so loose at the end, I couldn't even drive it. I saw David Pearson and Buddy Baker coming up on me, so I just moved over and let them go. I knew I had a lap lead on him, so I wasn't really worried about it. As for Benny, well, he just flat put it on us. I got outrun, pure and simple. I don't believe I've ever seen Benny's car so right. He was as strong as I've ever seen him. Now, I want to point out here that when you think of Benny Parsons winning races, you don't really think about Benny being a dominating driver because he wasn't. Now, Kale, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And David Pearson on super speedways, okay. You always think about those guys just running the field to pieces, but you didn't think that about Benny. Now, when this race happened and he ran so well that he dominated it, unlike he'd ever really done before. Well, I'll tell you what, when Kale said that he was as strong as I've ever seen him, Benny was as strong as anybody had ever seen him in that race. Well, Kel said, my car got so loose at the end, I couldn't even drive it. And he finished second. Well, David Pearson finished third one lap down. And David said, there's a bunch of us damn lucky to have finished the race. (laughs) When Petty had that trouble, it looked like he just slammed on the brakes. I was looking for a place to go. I slammed into Kale and then headed for the hills. I got grass all over myself when I hit the apron. We could never go get it back after that. So David's darn lucky to finish the race. 
He couldn't get the car fixed back the way he wanted it. He still finished third. Well, <laughs> Buddy Baker took fourth. And he said, I don't believe Samson could have driven that thing today. <laughs> that was the most ill handling thing I've ever tried to drive. We got a bad set of tires on the second pit stop and we never caught up. I don't know if we had one out of balance or going flat. The second, third, fourth place finishers were absolutely positively not happy with their race cars and they still got top five finishes. Now, I wonder what that says about the guys who are driving the cars back in the field. Well, I guess those guys had problems of a different kind themselves. But again, I stress, notice that all these guys had problems and Benny didn't have a single thing to go wrong. Now, that leads to domination. Well, Buddy Baker had evidently had some issues with Dick Brooks during the event. Buddy said, I got pissed off at Dick Brooks at the end of the race. Every time I tried to pass Pearson or pass him, Brooks would get right in the way. Hell, I didn't even know he was running that good. I thought he was out of it until <laughs> they told me he finished sixth. I blew my stack in the locker room. But when I found out the situation, I talked to Brooks about it. He told me the car was running really good and he was sorry he got in the way, but he was trying to catch Walter. What would it be like to be in the locker room and have Buddy Baker get mad at you? <laughs> I think you'd be scared to death. <laughs> Buddy Baker mad. But I'll give Buddy credit. He calmed down and talked to Brooks and learned of the entire situation. And that is exactly the kind of thing a competitor should do when he's mad. And they do it. They don't necessarily settle everything, but they do talk a lot. Well, I do think that says something about Buddy that he's able to turn that temper off as quickly as it had flared up. Richard Petty was involved in an accident and was eventually credited with a 32nd place finish. Richard said a shock support bracket broke and the right front end started jumping up and down. All I could think about was getting the car out of the way. I looked up in the mirror and saw all those cars behind me. I said, oh, heck, it looks like I'm right in the middle of it again. All I could think about was ever since I hurt my ribs at Bristol, I've had more crashes than any time in my life. Just when I feel like I'm going to get over the hurting, I either wreck or run into something and hurt all over again. I was real lucky they didn't knock me all over the place. And Richard was hurting at the time. He hadn't won since the Firecracker 400 at Daytona that year. And he would not win again until the Daytona 500 in 1979. So late 1977 and all of 1978 was a down year for Richard. And he had not experienced anything like that in his career, basically. And it should be pointed out that when he won the Daytona 500 in 1979, before that race, he had gone into surgery for ulcers. Yeah. And literally half his stomach was removed before he even started that Daytona 500. And lo and behold, he won it. So you're right. Those years before the Daytona 500 in 1979 were not kind, and he was hurting in more ways than one. Bobby Isaac died a couple of months before this issue hit the newsstands, and Gene Granger had a great feature story on his friend, Bobby Isaac. And I didn't know that they had such a close relationship, but evidently they were pretty tight. They had traveled together 
and Gene wrote in the story that he had been at Bobby's first Grand National win, and he was also at his last Grand National win. So they traveled quite a bit together, and the headline on the story was Dedicated and Determined Loner. And Steve, how much contact did you have with Bobby early in your career and late in his? Well, not a whole lot, except to say that uh, Bobby was the 1970 Grand National Champion. Now, in the fall of 1971, he raced at Martinsville, and he won that race, and that was the first race I ever covered. So along with about 10 other riders, I got to interview Bobby in the press box. That's my first winner's interview, and it was with Bobby Isaac. Now, I was never close to him after that, but I will say this. He knew me from that interview and remembered me. And more times than not, as much as he was a loner and didn't like to do interviews and didn't really like to talk so much, he stopped and always shook my hand and asked me how I was doing. I'll never forget that. Bobby only attended school through the sixth grade. And according to Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is never wrong. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that led to the incorrect rumor that Bobby couldn't read or write. And Gene wrote in his story on Bobby, Bobby could never accept the fact that he had untold numbers of friends. He was too sensitive about his background and the two marriages that landed on the rocks. He always felt that people were more interested in his past than his grand national career. That I can understand. I really can't. I'll tell you what, he also had one very, very, very good friend on the Grand National Circuit, and that was David Pearson. The two of them were about as close as you could get. How did they become so close? You know, I don't know, but they had similar personalities. Now, David was a little bit more open than uh, Bobby. David had a hard scrabble youth as well. Neither one of these guys were headed for the Ivy League, let's be real. So I think basically from the same backgrounds, they sort of recognized the kind of personalities they were, and it just came natural for them to be friends. Bobby had not been invited to take part in a meeting that took place in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in which the Professional Drivers Association was formed in 1969. And Steve, he evidently didn't appreciate that very much. Bobby said, it kind of hurt my feelings. Someone said I wasn't invited because I couldn't be trusted. I was good enough to race with them, but not good enough to join them. I'd never joined the PDA, and I stayed and raced while the others boycotted the race at Talladega. True story. He was very upset that he had not been included. And, you know, you have to agree with him. What organization looking to unionize, basically, the drivers does not invite the 1970 champion to take place. That doesn't make any sense. Speaking of Talladega, there has always been this legend about Bobby Isaac that he started hearing all these voices telling him to quit during a race there. And yeah, there's the talk about the track was built on the Indian burial ground and all that stuff. And those voices were telling Bobby to quit. And that article kind of dispels that myth. And Bobby said, I don't know where that little voices stuff came from. About midway through the race, I asked myself, what am I doing out here? And when I couldn't come up with a suitable answer, I told Bud Moore to get a relief driver as I was bringing the car in. 
So there's a big difference between being frustrated and asking yourself, what am I doing out here? Yeah. And you know, the voodoo voices or whatever. Oh saying, yeah. Get out of the car. You're going to get hurt. Get out of the car. Yeah. You're going to get hurt. Or, you know, something like that. Well, he didn't retire permanently. He came back and raced the next year. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I think Bobby had reached the point where racing was more work for him than enjoyment. And he thought it's time to move on and do something else eventually. This issue also covered that falls North Wilkesboro race, which was won by Darrell Waltrip after Paul Sitter, Richard Petty was taken out in an accident with Bobby Allison's lap car. Richard said he didn't back off the throttle and got sideways coming off a of turn four. I had to back off and got sideways and out of shape. Bobby said, it's a shame. I wasn't trying to give him any room. I could have backed off and pulled to the inside. I hate it happened. Uh, those two guys are making nice at that particular North World Forest. In 1972, you would have never heard the two of them <laughs> exchange those nice words, especially at a North World or Martinsville. Well, I love what Bobby said. He said, I wasn't trying to give him any extra room. I could have backed off, but I still hate it happened. <laughs> 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 that right there is Bobby Allison. <laughs> That's exactly right. There was a press release in this issue reporting that Mickey Mantle was going to attend the race at Rockingham. Mickey Mantle. Now, I am not a New York Yankees fan, but I can tell you this. It would have been awesome to meet Mickey Mantle. Well, I got news for you. I met him before the race. The Speedway had a special dinner for him out in one of the Speedway owners' hunting lodges. And I was invited along with a couple of other writers. They flew in lobsters from Maine for this dinner. And Mickey was there and he was conversing with everybody. And he was a very friendly guy. So you got to meet Mickey, huh? Yeah, I sure did. I have dinner with him. Yeah, that kind of blows mine away, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's just go for the gold, okay? All right. All right. You talked on the show before about meeting Elizabeth Taylor at Charlotte. And other uh -huh. than Mickey, who are some of the other celebrities that you've met over the years? David Carradine, uh, Darren McGavin, Joe Frazier, Burt Reynolds, Jim Neighbors, Jeff Bridges, Paul Newman, Pamela Anderson. Oh, you win. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley Judd of the rock group Steels and Crops. <laughs> I did meet Apollo 15 astronaut Al Warden at Daytona. The group Third Day was also at Daytona one year, and I got to talk to them for a minute or two. I was in a media scrum that interviewed Mark McGuire. Then there was Hulk Hogan and Tony Dorsett and Dick Buckus, and best of all, John Schneider from the Dukes of Hazard. Just two good old boys. Unfortunately, Catherine Bach was not there with him. Oh, <laughs> man. Miss Daisy. <laughs> Hi, I'm Huppy Wheeler, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
this podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. And Steve, this whole Diet Pepsi thing has got me to think. Uh-huh. Our challenge worked on the $20 a month. So I'm going to go ahead and say, if we can get $25 more a month, by next episode, I will go ahead and give up Diet Pepsi. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you heard here first. <laughs> Do you want to see Rick go cold turkey? Hey, get us that $25. <laughs> well, Steve, in lieu of Diet Pepsi, I have been drinking unsweetened tea without any sweetener. And no. that's just... <laughs> That's just not fun, man. That's like well, going next, to the prom with your grandmother. Rick, we're down south. Unsweet tea is just not popular down here. <laughs> it's sweet tea with lemon, but you can't do that. Well, I can now tell you why unsweet tea is not popular. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, as always, I need to thank the people who helped make this podcast what it is. Peter Salino and the team at Centire Media. The sound help is by Todd Phillips. Video production is by NASCAR man and music is provided by Joey step and frantic radio. Is that a rock group? That's my best friend. Joe's band frantic radio, frantic radio. All right. I like that. You need to look them up and buy their CDs. <laughs> <laughs> 